Welcome to another episode of Bringing Down the Grindhouse, a podcast where we discuss horror in media. And today we will be discussing The Shape of Water and Hellboy. I'm Mitch. I'm Mer. And I'm Jonathan. What inspired us to pick these movies for this week? I think they're both just Guillermo del Toro's movies. Yeah, I think this was sort of my choice, like kind of heavy on choosing both of them. Uh, just because to me they had similar vibes and it's most obviously because they were directed by the same director but also they explore like a story that is horror-esque but not exactly horror I believe it's uh, it's like they are horror-esque in so many ways but they dwell into different subgenres. yeah uh, there's a bunch of like Hellboy like, yeah. is like a superhero movie co- inspired by the dark horse comics. Well, yeah. um, I would say that the shape of water is a modern day, uh, fairy tale love story. Yeah. It's like a beauty and the beast kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You've, yeah, you've definitely have got like that, that sort of vibe with both of those movies. I would say, uh, I, I mean, I would agree with Murray that like the shape of water is definitely like your, uh, romance horror yeah and then you've got like hellboy which is like your action horror yep sort of thing there was also a romance in it yeah i i will say yeah, there's a little bit yeah i will say that uh these this was the first time for me seeing these movies either one either one oh, yeah shit. i didn't watch either of them and i had a really good time with both of them uh i had a lot of more fun with the shape of water but right i think we should probably just go over hellboy first because it was made first in 2004 yeah it also shows where his directing skills were kind of at in 2004 um basically with hellboy i mean the thing about guillermo del toro a great mexican filmmaker yeah uh is that he loves monsters and he's just fascinated with them and he loves stories so he just finds a way to put a lot of monsters into stories uh, a lot of his monsters that he makes are explorations of his fears that he had as a child. So they translate it into films that he made. Fucking dope. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's he's talked about that a lot in his interviews. It's why he made like Pan's Labyrinth. It's why he made Hellboy. It's why he made like Crimson Peak. And uh, God, what was the other one that he had made? Um, I can't remember the the name of the other film, but they're all based on like childhood fears, and he was like working it out. Oh, mimic, mimic. That was the other one. Yeah. <laughs> also did Pacific Rim. <laughs> yeah, which is like, oh, God, that movie's so good. Uh, we should do, we should talk about that at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, just going over some real quick specs. Yeah. Uh. The budget for this movie was $66 million and it made $99.9 million at the box office. It made a lot less than I thought it would. I don't know. Maybe it's just because superhero movies were not popular at, like, 2004. Like, this was, like, I think right before they kind of broke out with all of the Marvel movies. Yeah, we had Blade and Blade 2. Yeah. And then, like, maybe a Daredevil movie. Mm. <laughs> it's awful. Um, but Hellboy was just, like, a really crazy pick because it's not really a known superhero i mean he said he had the script done in like 1998 like he could have filmed it in 98 but no one wanted to take it up because superhero films were not popular and so he had to wait and find somebody who like approved the story and then it finally got done in 2004 
uh, fun fact about the production of the movie, though, because it is written by Mike Magnola. Yeah. Um, they went down to the cutting board. It was him and, and Mike Magnola, and they're just like, all right, so on the count of three, we're going to say who we want to star into this movie. All right. <laughs> Go. And they both said Ron Perlman at the Fuck same yeah. time. <laughs> he's so which... great. I think he's perfect <laughs> as that casting, which, like, I think he did well. And I think, you know, the newer Hellboy that they made. The one they made last year? Yeah, I think that movie was shit, but the guy who they cast for it was perfect. Like, they, those, oh, were, he, those were two really good uh, casting. He's, he's Hopper. David Hopper in yeah. uh, Stranger Things. Exactly. I think they were both really good versions of Hellboy, but he got such a shit movie for that one. It was so bad. But this, this I mean, movie I, all around. I heard really nobody good. talk about <laughs> Yeah. It's for good reason. Like, I couldn't even finish the movie. Like, do you oh, know how geez. often I don't finish a movie? <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just, I just didn't like the attitude or the trailers didn't make me very excited for the newer Hellboy movie, the right. 2019 one. Anyway, plus like after reading the comic books, like we did in our previous yeah, episode and stuff, like, and going back and like kind of seeing it, I was like, I don't think this isn't the Hellboy that I like. And I feel Perlman captured the essence of what Hellboy is as a character a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, he was also really like cocky version of his character because he always wanted to brag and he, he constantly tells uh, Liz how he's just always going to look that attractive. Like it's even like a line <laughs> in the film, which is really funny, but he's great and he has a really good stage presence for a character like that. So it fits well. Yeah, I, f- I feel but, like it was like flirtatious sarcasm yeah, in that exactly. moment. With, with with her, you know, because he's just like, he's like, you know, I'm always going to look this good. Yeah. After he's just been like beaten the face and <laughs> yeah. ripped his own horns off and shit. You know, it's like. Also super funny, though. Uh, the only reason he said that is because Guillermo Toro, del Toro told his wife, you know, I'm always going to look this good, baby. In response to him, <laughs> his wife being mad at him for like, Guillermo, you, you just you wear like such bland clothes. Oh, man. Baby, I'm always gonna look this good. That's funny. <laughs> I could imagine that happening between his wife and him. Oh yeah, no, that's such um, a good. Uh, I think it's a good line. So supporting him, we have John Hurt as Trevor Broom Bruttenholm, uh, Hellboy's Fuck father. Yeah. Does an excellent job. We have Selma Blair as the love interest, uh, Liz Sherman, yeah. also known pyromancer. Rupert <laughs> uh, Evans as the new kid on the block john myers who's fucking hilarious he's so like awkwardly new like fresh recruit just super just out of his element yeah um carol roden as our antagonist gregory rasputin which i thought was a very interesting fucking person i liked him i liked that version of rasputin he was like yeah he's just pretentious he thought he was like the best thing like ever and like nothing could stop him yep basically (laughs) also he's a pretty good villain as well i mean i like odd to have ross Rasputin as like a a antagonist when he's supposed to be dead for so long i mean it makes sense though like he was known as like this crazy mystic so like i would i agree like i think that would be cool to have like it was weird but it seems to fit somehow in the weird mythology that they created yeah so like i think it worked out also we can't forget doug jones who plays abe sapien oh great excellent job he's literally in both films he's he's abe sapien and he is the amphibian creature in in shape of water yep 
and he's just like he's he's well known to be um, a creature actor because he is a contortionist as well as like a mime <laughs> so he's just really good at at uh, embodying the movement that comes for all these creatures and he has so many uh like roles that are credited to him for all of the creatures you just got to go look at his uh filmography it's great right and he he's worked with Guillermo Toro Bunch for times. most of his movies yeah um I think you were telling me about Pan's Labyrinth, how he plays the what? He was like the fey creature in that one. The like tall, uh, satyr looking kind of thing. With the eyes for hand in the No, hands. no. The other one. The one that has horns and he's like hairy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The one you're thinking of is the creature like in one of the rooms mm. that she visits. It's that, that movie. We, we should do that movie at some point too. So... So what I'm what I'm getting here is uh, so Doug Jones was the one that did all of the body work, body motion work for Abe. Yeah, and then yeah. it was voiced right. by a different person, which is interesting. Yeah, it was was David Hyde Pierce. Yeah, who, who voiced him? Uh, who wanted to be uncredited? Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's the cool thing is that he didn't. He refused to go on tours. Well, Pierce refused to go on tours and whatnot out of respect for Doug Jones, who was physically in the film, which is like. Which that's I find really very nice. interesting. Yeah, that's really nice of someone. Uh, to it, do. Yeah, exactly. He's just like, no, nah, I didn't really do that. That was the guy that mouthed all his lines and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I just like read them and collect an easy paycheck because I'm a voice actor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Doug I'm... Doug Jones had to go through like some very similar, uh, just makeup for both films. Like he, they made a suit for both films of him, yeah. and they had to paint him. Uh, specifically for Hellboy for Abe Sapien, yeah. uh, who I honestly think is my favorite character in this. But um, essentially, they had to put on makeup for him for about eight hours. Damn. And then had to go through the long process of taking it off every day. Yeah, that seems uh, exhausting. Then they then they got a little bit smarter. They made a suit for him to use uh, with mechanical gills and all that stuff, which oh, is the gotcha. same thing that they used for sh- The Shape of Water. Man. But the thing is with Doug Jones, he's super skinny. The, yeah. the um, how tight they made the suit, they weren't able to fit uh, so many mechanics in it simply because uh, did I mean, it's a very skin tight suit. It's supposed to look like, you know, watery flesh. Yeah. Uh, so at that point they were just like, all right, CGI eyes, which is the dark crystal effect yeah. where we have a practical effect with CGI over it to blend the two. That's wild. Just like uh, in the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance that we talked about yeah, yeah. Uh, earlier last year. Uh, and, yeah. I like that they mentioned a lot of times uh, when I was reading through the production stuff that the film was inspired by Ray Harryhausen films, who is like the like the creator of certain stop motion animations like Dynamation. The big dick motherfucker Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> the Literally. guy who worked on like Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans. Like this is the guy but who really the made stop it. motion guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it I mean, sucks, dude. They try to reach out to him <laughs> to be like, hey, do you want to like come on set and like talk to people? And he was like, No, no, thanks. <laughs> well, he he was just like modern movies are just too violent. Yeah, he didn't me. like it. Can't. Which is hilarious coming from him, but you know. Yeah, what? you know what? You could destroy claymation hydras. Yeah, but God damn you if you try to shoot a wolf hybrid <laughs> eel thing. I don't know what to call. Why do it. I feel like this was like the ultimate boomer moment? 
Uh, did I mean? Did he? Did he stop doing films? Uh, he died. His, yeah, oh, his I'm last... fucking dumb. All right. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> he died in like '94 or something like that. He was like 90. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, his his last film was Clash of the Titans, uh, which is great okay. because next week we are going to be talking about Clash of the Titans and Jason of the Argonauts for my birthday. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's sick. It's oh yeah, it's for his birthday soon. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's getting there. That is fantastic. Yeah, but that was like their main influence. They wanted to make a movie like his movie, so the the film itself didn't really have that much camera movement. It was using mostly wide shots for all of the all the fights, all the introductions, things like that. And the thing is, like these fight scenes are just straight out of comic books. Yeah, they they mentioned oh, yeah. numerous times that they were trying to emulate the stuff that like Jack Kirby had made, who is just a huge powerhouse in comics because he had worked on so many different like main marvel heroes and yeah, no, they did a really good job the thing about it is like uh perlman at the helm I yeah mean, he, he's so good he definitely had to, he worked out heavily I he bet, worked out yeah. like seven days a week for the role as most people do when you're trying to be a superhero uh figure i mean <laughs> even you know fucking paul rudd super funny dude had a fucking workout just become ant-man so yeah right uh, that was like when you first saw the guy who plays star lord what is his name oh chris pratt yeah when he was andy dwyer fucking just like a chubby character in the tv show and then just got ripped to play star lord right that was sick um i do know that ron perlman it was really funny though because uh they wanted to originally put the giant fist on the left hand so he could use they were like oh well what if he's right-handed then we'll just make two fists and then luck of the draw ron perlman is actually left-handed oh shit uh so he could actually preserve the right hand of doom is right what they call yeah it, the giant exactly um, that's pretty cool he actually did break a rib uh, during the filming Ugh. of the subway scene where he jumped onto a 45 mile per hour train oh god <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> that's wild oh fuck breaking a rib sounds terrible man and we thought if we thought ron perlman was just a badass actor he's just a badass in real life too. <laughs> he's getting up breaks rib he's a older for it. now you, you oh yeah are... he's probably he's he's caning it now i think oh dang <laughs> <laughs> you also remember Poor that guy. ron Perlman was uh, one of the main characters in Blade 2, which we talked about a couple weeks yep, back. Yep. <laughs> where he never took off his shades. Nope. <laughs> he never did take off his shades. He was like, I'm too cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, essentially, though, they just wanted to stay true to the comic, and a lot yeah. of executives just didn't like that. They didn't like know, the idea at all. They yeah. wanted it to be like, oh, hey, like, he turns into help. What if it's a normal guy that turns into help? Right. And Guillermo del Toro just wouldn't have it. It was like, are you are you fucking dumb? Like, do you yeah. not do you not know this source material? He worked really closely with with Mike Mikula, the guy who created it. Yeah, oh, that makes a lot makes a lot of sense yeah. though, because you know it's it makes sense. Even like even the first film has a little bit of that German expressionism in it too. Oh, totally. Especially like the opening scenes and whatnot. They do a lot of of uh, interesting like comic book shade, just like the scene, not even action scenes, just the scenes themselves are just very much in line with that art style. And I really liked that because it was a nice homage to I'm, the comics themselves. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up the uh, intro scene 
because we pr- probably should go over some plot points about it, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, so basically, Nazis are trying to make a rift in space to summon elder gods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's that breaks it down pretty good. They're some, like some. They're like conduit <laughs> is Rasputin. Is <laughs> yeah, somehow he's alive, even though you know, 1916, and it was 44 when this shit's going down. But yeah, man, he figured have... out how to reincarnate himself. <laughs> I will I... say the German like sword slinger dude oh my god oh you oh, mean the assassin hitler's yeah. like main assassin that guy yep or no yeah he's so he is hard. fucking crazy in this movie he's like probably one of the, like the probably one of some of the coolest fight scenes come from him also and also some of the creepiest moments like uh, him working on himself is just strange is that the dude who's carl ruprite ruprite i can't even pronounce his name Cronin? Uh, Carl Ruprecht Cronin. Yeah. Yep. Cronin, the the dude in like the SS outfit with like the gas mask. Yep. yep that guy. Yeah. And the blades. That guy's nuts. Yep. So. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times they played that noise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have John Hurt as a uh, informant for the U.S. invading an island with a bunch of uh, U.S. American soldiers. Right. And they're basically saying like, man, I just learned what the term supernatural means. What, uh, what are you talking abnormal. about? I've never even Paranormal. heard the term. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, come to find out Nazis are trying to summon elder gods from across the fucking universe. I don't know, man. That seems on reason. brand for Nazis. Not going to lie. <laughs> they were doing Dude, weird pretty... cult shit. Dude. The thing is, like, I love this intro because it's so comic book. It's because it Nazis were fucking with the occult, yeah, super hard back in the day, and they even make a reference to it uh, later in the film when they go to the secret FBI hideout, yeah, uh, with the Spear of Destiny or the Spear of uh, Longinus, Longinus, <laughs> Longinus, yeah. But do you guys know about that? Yeah, <laughs> I love that because he's like, yeah, you know, when Hitler died in such year, he's like, Hitler didn't die that year. And he's like, oh, <laughs> really? Is that what they tell you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get he now. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great line. So for those yeah, that is. don't know, the the Spear of Destiny is basically, uh, it is said to be the spear that pierced Jesus when he hung from the cross. Yep. And killed him. Um the spear supposedly holds supernatural powers that can make one invincible yeah as well as other things um hitler actually grabbed a hold of this in real time though that's an actual fact wait what um yeah so when did that happen so when germany was about to invade austria yeah uh essentially what happened was uh hitler sent out an informant to just be a casual civilian in austria to go to the museum in which the spear was uh there oh and then the day that he walked into the city the informant dressed into the nazi uniform and stood guard until hitler was there to take the rightful uh wreck uh what what would you call like a art ancient artifact basically (laughs) like plundered it basically um and then he Always, dis- he always had it in the back of his mind that Germany and Austria were never to be defined as Germany and Austria, because this is totally Roman Empire territory. Oh wow! 
And so they didn't want to take it to Berlin, which was the brain of the Roman Empire, but they took it to Nuremberg, the heart of the Roman Empire. Of course. And then, which case, the U.S. got a hold of it eventually after the Nuremberg trials. And it's also in some kind of, like, shack. Or not shack. It's in some warehouse in Nevada in, like, fucking... Right next to the Ark of the Covenant and fucking the Woolly Mammoth and everything else. Wait, so did they lose track of it at some point? No, no. After the Nuremberg trials, I'm pretty sure America got a hold of it. And then, basically, they made a whole movie about it called Constantine. (laughs) That's true. They did focus. We need to talk about Constantine at some point. Oh, all right. There's more. There's more to this story. So, everything up to it getting... uh, It being found in Nuremberg and whatnot. It was stored in St. Catherine's Church in Nuremberg. And then until 1944, and then it was moved to a specially constructed vault beneath the church, built in secret and at great expense, intended to protect it and the other stolen relics from Allied bombs. Shit. Nuremberg was captured by Allied troops in April of the following year. The vault was subsequently discovered by American army forces. And then the Spear of Destiny was confiscated by American forces on the afternoon of April 30th, 1945, less than two hours after the Spear of Destiny was allied forces hitler committed suicide like after they captured it <laughs> fucking shit yeah hitler wanted ufos he wanted laser guns yeah, and the dude wanted the spear of destiny to to let loose hell so, for his new world order <laughs> does the united states still have it yes uh yeah to- no yeah it was it was confiscated and moved There's i'm not no, sure where it is so now weird like like i said it's probably yeah, in like right. some underground secret base. Some... Oh, they're back in Austria now. They were returned to Austria in 1946. Oh, yeah, it's in Austria. Uh, Imper- all the of uh, the Spear of Destiny and the rest of the Imperial regalia were returned to Austria. Oh shit! And they're on public display at the Hofsburg Museum. Interesting. There That's you go. Insane. Anyway, right. so quick history, history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But... Quick history lesson. Interesting <laughs> stuff. So this is some real shit. And then they kind of throw in the espionage aspect of right. it like oh the war went on a little bit longer but i bet america told you to, that to calm you down i Silly. really like the cut in the movie where he's like let me tell all of you that the the what is it the group of the bureau of paranormal research and defense does not exist there is no such thing and then it cuts yeah. And it says it right on the screen. Where it's like yeah, it's a, yeah, there's a little card, the title card yeah, for it. Yeah, and shows that he's arriving there. And I'm like, this is great. Because like, uh, that's yes. exactly what happens. Uh, Tom Manning, also known as uh, George Bluth, Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a total of the schmuck in this movie. But yeah. in all honesty, he plays it off pretty well. Like, I can't keep telling the public these lies, man. They're going to have to figure out one of these days. This is My fun. favorite is the talk show where he's just like, why, why in all of these pictures, uh, why is Hellboy always blurry? <laughs> like asking the real fucking questions. Like, though. you know, pictures of Bigfoot and but, shit like that. But I mean, also, but this, this character is one of the most naive FBI agents I think I've yeah, ever seen. It's so bad. I've never seen such incompetence from an FBI agent in a film. Usually they're like, painted as someone who really has their shit together but no right this guy is like if hellboy wasn't there he would be dead oh totally. like <laughs> so many times yeah he saves his ass yeah despite so, him being a prick to him so then what we have is uh after this rift into the void is opened uh hellboy is let loose and they find him as a child yeah, you also um, get a glimpse of the giant uh, eldritch fucking monsters in space that are just floating there, frozen. Yeah, super crazy super cool. shit. 
Um, they then take him under the wing and they find the bureau quickly after that, where he's been, you know, chilling out, working out, eating a bunch of chili and smoking cigars. Yeah, apparently he ages life. very slowly. And he loves baby Ruth's and hates the comic book series. That's just hilarious yeah. because in the movie, the comics exist. Yeah. Yeah. The actual comics from the Yeah, so like you get actual Hellboy comics because the person who made the Hellboy comics approved it. Yeah. That's Good super shit. Great. Yeah, so um, you got and... to do shit like that. It was cool. Then we finally have uh, the new kid on the block, John Hurt, taking over as the caregiver of Hellboy simply – or not John Hurt, sorry. Uh, Rupert Evans, John Johnny Myers. Yeah, shows up. He's He is showing up trying to take over, basically control Hellboy simply because Trevor Brun- Bruntonholm, uh, the father of Hellboy, is dying. Yeah, he's got cancer. I don't know something that. Yeah, he him. has multiple cancer that spread all over the place. Yeah, basically. so he's definitely like expecting to die very soon and wants to mm-hmm. like pass on the like leadership role to somebody that's also human. <laughs> and uh, uh, they go into this underground bureau area, and it's pretty intense. And if I'm being real, I kind of wish that we could have saw more of that. Uh, oh um, yeah like more areas of what that more areas was. dude more just like just like hey do you remember that thing you learned in history that's missing here it is right yeah like because <laughs> i mean case. they when they look at the spear of destiny i was just like dude that's gonna come into play it never did i know i thought it was too i really thought it was like a loaded gun kind of thing where it's like check it out you're gonna see this in like the third act i was like so excited to see the spear of destiny actually be used like uh uh an ancient Jesus artifact that is fucking untouchable, but no. Dude, Jesus lore <laughs> is wild. Um, but then, then we get introduced to the team or the duo, as it is. Uh, he walks in and finds a fish tank in this super nice, just regular ass fucking. What would you call it? It's like a library. Yeah, like a library. Yeah. Can you turn the page for me, please? He's reading like six books at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's Abe funny too him. is that eggs are included in both films as the creature's like favorite food. They give him yes. rotten eggs in this yeah, one. Yeah, except rotten eggs in Hellboy. <laughs> yeah. It's just random. It's a random like uh callback similarity in both films. <laughs> yeah, there's both films do have a fish man. That is a current yeah. funny similarity <laughs> between the two of them. Uh, no, I mean specifically the egg eating. <laughs> oh yeah, the egg eating for sure. And that they both have a fish man. Egg eating fish men. Yeah. Yeah. Egg eating fish men is a commonality here. Yeah. I mean he needs a strict protein diet, well, as they say in the shape of water. Yeah, exactly. Well the the Hellboy's dad gets at the idea that Hellboy kind of has to figure out if he's gonna go down a certain path because he knows that his like destiny basically which Rasputin tells him is that like his destiny is to be the right hand of doom and to destroy like everybody on earth but obviously Hellboy doesn't want to do that so like he shaves down his horns he joins like this group to like hunt down demons and stop them from killing people so he's like stuck between choosing a good or bad path and that's sort of like what the film explores and it's it's pretty intense because i i i do have to say this though the little glimpse that we get into the quote-unquote future for hellboy right rips i mean not even rip but doom eternal 
will straight up rip that shit, dude. I'm not even joking. <laughs> you see eldritch like tentacles in the sky. Yeah. You see an a burn a burning apocalypse of just skyscrapers and rubble with demons. I mean, like it it when I saw that, I was like, I'm just playing Doom Eternal right now, and it was just like a shot for shot almost recreation in some areas of the game. <laughs> Fucking I guess crazy shit. Something interesting about this film is it asks the question of whether or not it is usually correct to follow your own destiny. Sort of like a moral, like a moral question. Right. Is it always right to follow your destiny? Yeah. Is in this yeah. case, he cared a lot about the people that he was working with, especially mm -hmm. the woman he fell in love with, which was Liz. And mm -hmm. she, I mean, she, she was kind of uniquely uh, like appropriate for who he was. He's fireproof. She's has fire powers. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And will burns everything around her whenever she activates those powers too. Yeah. She doesn't have a lot of does she, she them. Yeah, she doesn't seem like she has very good control over it, like at all. No, she eventually gets a little better control as the films go on. Like if you watch like the second one. Yeah, I've seen the second one, but it's been a long time. I like the second one. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I remember enjoying it too. I remember being like, that was enjoyable. The most underrated villain, really, in uh, like recent films, honestly. Oh damn. Yeah. Okay. Summer Blair as Liz, she definitely pulls off that like i'm in rehab i'm trying to get better <laughs> yeah kind of uh emotion out and it it definitely contrasts when uh john myers is trying to put the the hit on her you know just because <laughs> ron perlman's character's hellboy gets super jealous i like that whole bit where he's just following them and and he talks to the know, kid on the fucking yeah, exactly. rooftop he talks to that kid and it's just like yo check this out watch his arm watch his arm and he sees him like do the yawning move and everything but then he just fucking pelts him in the forehead with a rock oh dude that shit's hilarious. i just i just love that because like it's it must feel so dope to just you know have a superhero just on your rooftop right. just i'm on a spy mission yeah no <laughs> one's gonna believe you 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 feel that child's joy you're just like yes help what you i'll guard your mission where are you going right. <laughs> do, do you want cookies my mom made cookies yeah. i'm Which... glad that they included comical moments like that for the film like because there was other parts of the film that were extremely serious like what we were talking about earlier with his i mean that's decision kinda... so it balanced stuff out one of the things i liked about at least the comical moments of this movie where they translated from comics to film which was a uh, something that you saw a lot of in the comics was the comedy mixed with serious moments. Right. So for instance, in the movie, which is something that's also in the comics to a similar situation, though it's not exactly the same as one where, where I think it was uh, Liz is right beneath him, right beneath Hellboy, like through a floor and then Hellboy's up, up top. And then she's like, you need to cut, get down here like right now. And he's like, I'm coming. And he just starts like smashing through the floor to get down. There. Oh, yeah. And, like, he's like that. Like, I'm on my way. You know, like it, it's just it's just funny. Wall. And I think that he did something similar, but it was like, I think a group of enemies were in front of him and he's trying to get to probably her or Abe or something like that. And he's just like right. on my way. Uh, mm, uh, get, and then he gets dragged, like, pulled through yeah. the floor. Like, I'm still coming. <laughs> this is like funny shit like that. I like it. That makes me think of the panel that I saw for one of the comics where he runs into this monster like in the forest and he mm -hmm. was just like, who the fuck are you? And he has like the gun out and then the monster actually answers. He's like, oh, my name's Paul. And he's like, oh, and he like puts his gun down. He's like, hi, Paul. <laughs> it's yeah. just a funny ass moment because he's so serious. He's like ready to shoot this guy. And then he's like, oh, wait. Oh, hey, what's up? 
and the gun uh the samaritan yeah. a huge ass revolver uh f- carries four shots and has some pretty sick is it really bullets. only four shots they are 22 millimeter fucking metal tipped uh bullets 22 isn't that like as big yeah, as your finger it's huge it's huge <laughs> yeah uh the bullets contain holy water silver that. cloves and oak tree yeah and, all those uh, uh, we've... blessed things we yeah exactly we see this uh in his first confrontation with samuel uh samuel the pretty much the main hellhounds for this movie it, it's the uh, son of samuel son of samuel also son. known as lord of the shadows harbinger of pestilence nice. seed of destruction and the hound of resurrection <laughs> oh yeah then, that's like, right harbinger of <laughs> plagues and a whole bunch of other fucking things like there's like a uh, whole list so okay. basically the a, a good a, not to just dwell on like plot points but essentially these demons are coming together and they're like, fighting each other or not fighting each other they're, they're coming out of the woodwork to spawn each other so it could make hellboy go into that void and become the harbinger or the right hand of doom essentially yeah and uh That's they like all come back job as a demon and they come back near the end of the movie uh because we're going through trying to kill all of these but fail at every attempt and a couple agents die uh near the end they go into like this russian church kind of thing right john yeah it's like a temple kind of it's it's intended for the ritual and then he even brings the cutout of where hellboy is supposed to put his right hand which is like the key mm-hmm. to unlock it and then be able to it's like a signal into space for the for the eldritch creatures to like come through into their plane of existence yeah, so uh, basically, like they succeed in their plan, right? Uh, but but Hellboy, he you know, she basically tells Liz to use her power, and uh, she uses her power to destroy all these uh, Samael dogs. And Hellboy's like, finally, it, uh, that was over. It's that's all good. And then he gets proceeded to get fucking picked up by an eldritch god that is undescribable because that's what eldritch gods are. Doesn't it, like, <laughs> burst out of Rasputin? Mm-hmm. After right. one of his eyes gets knocked out, and you just see, like, a tentacle, like, surge under him. Yeah, he, and then it just rips open and basically eats him, but not mm-hmm. before he is able to uh, undo all of those grenades and then explodes it from inside. Mm-hmm. Another fun Very kill was the uh, that, that Nazi fucking war general where like the the one with the gas mask oh yeah yeah where he just throws him into the pit and then drops the giant cog onto him <laughs> yeah well that was a weird character because he was like obsessed with surgically changing himself so yeah. he like cut his eyelids off he had no lips uh, he like did all he was like some shit. of my favorite because a lot of his stuff's practical effects except for like his eyes yeah. and like his hands and oh, whatnot right, right. but a lot right. of his like body work and stuff looks really cool yeah i, I love really it well too because uh the dad goes over it real quick but he says like this man's blood has dried up centuries ago or whatever sand (laughs) and he's just been working on fucking uh like years essentially yep Mm -hmm. that's why he's so Um, like weird like the way he moves his movement is kind of uh robotic it's 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 really cool and the practical effects you got to give it to them especially with guillermo del toro he loves scary and monster like shit right um, which is like a good uh comparison because that guy alters himself 
for evil while while uh hellboy alters himself to stay away from that yeah he fucking cuts off his horns <laughs> he like shaves them down uh but yeah i i mean i i don't really have too much to say about the movie it's a it's a it's a superhero movie that has occult like stuff in it and uh it definitely just makes me want to watch the sequel right but overall i was like I was just kind of like, yeah, that was a fun one. For 2004, not bad. The sequel is really good. Uh, it brings in, like, lore from another part of the comics. And it basically gets at the idea that there was some sort of agreement at some point between humans, elves, and, uh, like, one other species of creatures. And that, like, they essentially wouldn't kill each other anymore. But the crown prince of the elves is trying to retrieve some like artifacts that belong to his family so that he can get like a, a, an army to fight back against the humans. Cause he doesn't like that. They're not really listening to the treaty anymore, but he's really good. Right. And I think it's a, I think it's a pretty good movie. It got shit on <laughs> like when it oh, came out, fuck. like nobody liked it. They thought it was a terrible movie, but I was like, what this is a really good movie. So this is one of those movies that I was like totally against the critics on it. I was like, no, this is, this is legit. You should go watch it. I give thumbs up to the practical effects yeah, uh, really that, good practical that effects they use in too. these movies. Uh, the only other thing that stood out in Hellboy to me was that it was dealing really broadly with certain ideas. And one of them was obviously Hellboy's decision to be good or bad. That was kind of the overarching feeling of the movie was the good versus bad uh, story that kind of progresses. And then him feeling alone and separated from society. And Liz feels the same way too, where she says that she can't really be around anybody because she's going to hurt them. So that was kind of like the main things that stood out to me for that film. Definitely. Yeah, it was, I felt like it was, it becomes like, you know, you have like, you know, your, your fight against good and evil for sure. But then you just have this character with a very, uh, a pretty a pretty interesting internal conflict to be honest you know not many there's not many characters that they themselves will bring about the apocalypse and must constantly make the choice to not do it while their enemies try to convince them to do so it was also a really grand story like it had a large (laughs) scale to it compared to like the smaller scale of the shape of water yeah it's it's just kind of funny where they're just like they're just like uh your old your doom is to follow the path you're supposed to follow like you're thinking like, yeah. like that it's it's just very uh it's a very good concept for a storyline oh, in totally. general. So it works really well for this movie and in, indeed it makes a very intricate and intrigue intriguing plot for sure. And a good character too. Yep. What do you guys uh, think of the end? Uh fine. <laughs> I mean it's just one story out of his whole story arc, so it made sense right. that it wouldn't like end specifically. I mean, they didn't get the FBI agent out of there. Right. <laughs> I mean, you saw the ending credit, right? It had a Marvel ending yeah. fucking credit. Scene. Yeah, he's just like, yo, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> where are you guys at? Where is everyone? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I don't, no, I thought it was nice because it, they, they come together like, uh, I produce fire and can't control it. I can't catch on fire. Yeah. Well, like, fire. why are we playing with each other? Why don't we just be in love? <laughs> yeah, she was kind of trying to avoid him for a long time, but ended up being like yeah uh we're just gonna be together and they are um sort of <laughs> in the second one it's a weird relationship yeah it gets, it gets weird <laughs> what do you think of the end mitch 
uh, the ending of the of the movie itself. Yeah, I've heard. Um, I mean, there's the awesome fight with with Rasputin's like gut bursting monster. Uh, <laughs> pretty cool. Um, I mean, there's like a lot of. I mean, there's I, there's stuff you could easily analyze about it a little bit, but it's a really like hero's journey journey story and. Yeah, you know, I felt deal. like it's uh it's like a tragedy because we know that at some point he's probably not gonna be able to escape that fate. Yeah, right. Yeah, it might be a time when he has to do it or something along yeah. those lines. But um, as far as now, but it's kind of like he's always going to be running from being, yeah. you know, becoming the the thing that ends all things. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, I feel like this is a good time to switch over to the other film we watched, which was The Shape of Water. Woo! What a fucking film! It's amazing. Yeah, it's oh god, it's so it's so well done, and I feel like this is probably his best movie. It's his favorite movie. It is definitely his favorite movie, and he's commented on how this film was uh, really adult for him. Like he he, this wasn't something that he had thought of as a child. He thought of the idea like over breakfast or lunch or something with somebody, and was like, "We have to make it." And then it was also like his own, uh, like fanfic of fucking creature the Black Lagoon. Like he wanted the <laughs> yeah. creature to be with the yeah. woman, so like he kind of just made his own fanfiction. I mean, it really, it really is, and it feels like that too, yeah. especially after just recently seeing it in one of our other past episodes too. Yeah. It was very interesting watching this movie and going, uh, like really seeing where his influence comes from, which is you know from those older, those more classic horror movies. You know, yeah, exactly. He, he was asked to do the Universal one because Universal, you know, they did the Invisible Man with Lee Winnell. Right. Um, they're doing that that restructured cinematic they're universe trying. for the Universal. Mo- <laughs> they're trying. Oh, they're trying. <laughs> uh, yeah, they uh, can't get it off the ground. Uh, Lee Winnell did a, a phenomenal job. Is on Del Toro going to do it or no? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> he said he was going to do it, but then he wanted to tell them, "I don't want this to be your run of the mill." I kind of right. want this to be from the perspective of the creature. Yeah. And they're like, nah, we ain't having they that. They rejected so like, it hard. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go make my own. And in in some ways, it is the only like retelling of the creature from the Black Lagoon right. as kind of story that we have for like 50 or 45 years. Yeah. 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 No one I'm, had attempted it. I mean, argue, arguably, this is because remember, okay, so, oh, shit. Whoa. Whoa. All right. So remember, there's the really like the tough asshole guy from yeah. Creature of the Black Lagoon. Yes. I forget his actual name, but there's the tough asshole guy. And then there's like the scientist yeah. save everybody. Oh, guy. totally. Yeah. So it's like in an alternate future where the bad guy wins in that in that situation and brings the oh, creature back. Yeah. Oh, yes. right. That's exactly right. right. That's totally what he's yes. like rolling with yes. right yes. now. That's and exactly then love saved the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, um... Yeah. No, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think the funniest thing about it is uh, Guillermo del Toro was like, so when I was six, I watched Creature of the Black Lagoon, right? And then I watched King Kong, and while I'm watching them, I'm just like, oh, I'm sure these guys are gonna come out on top. Yeah, right? the creature's gonna get the girl, right? Yeah, he's gonna get the girl, right? <laughs> just like right. he I'm just, he, you, I man, just this picture is fanfic just... of <laughs> Creature so of the sad. Black Lagoon. Um. Is... Well, now what we know is that Guillermo del Toro is truly like a fishy, a fish. or whatever, or whatever, or whatever the term is for someone who I wants to be an aquatic being. Furry, isn't it? 
No, I don't think so. They call him Scaly. No, they don't. You're bullshitting. Is it Scaly? No, I'm not. No, I'm not bullshitting you. It's got to be Scaly. Wait. It has to be. I don't think that scalies are also furries. Wait, wait. So there's a difference if there you probably have, is. if you have fur, I, we're just we're we're spitballing here. or something. Else. Yeah, <laughs> are spitballing. we just spitballing it? Like there can't be a difference, right? All right. Well, one moment. I will ask the great internet. <laughs> right, let me okay. let me Google I'll, this. While you while you do while you do that, I'll just go over a little bit of some production. Hell yeah. Um, it should be noted this movie was nominated for 17 different awards yeah, at the Academy nuts. Awards. So many awards. I will go over each and every one of them. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> uh, best picture, director, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, best original screenplay, cinematography, costume design, film editing, original score, production design, sound editing, and sound mix. Yeah, it was it was very ready to mop up the Academy Awards that year. It and, dominated super hard. It, and it won best picture. Yep. Best director. Yeah. Best uh, production score. design and best original score by Alexander Desplat, who is just like the most decorated fucking composer ever. He has so many awards because <laughs> he just does original compositions and uh, scores for films like constantly. I mean, he did fucking Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise yep. Kingdom. Got the god. He did 2014's Godzilla. He yep. did fucking this is Grand so Budapest stuff. Hotel. Yeah. Just so much. And then on top of all those awards, it was it premiered at the 74th Venice International Film Festival, and it won the award for the best film there, which is The Golden Lion. Hell yeah! So it's just, uh, I feel like that's kind of unfair, though. I'm not gonna lie. Like somebody who's doing an indie film goes to the same <laughs> festival, and then you have fucking del toro dropping the shape of water and you're like well fuck i guess i'm not winning this year that's the thing kevin smith even tweeted after watching it you know it's like movies like these that make me ask myself am i a director right yeah <laughs> honestly am i a fucking director so the uh the music by alexander Desplat is a phenomenal soundtrack that captivates all the emotions that you're feeling this is a very emotional movie i feel like he just sat after the film was done he just started making music like while he was watching it because it, it looks like it's perfectly set for whatever is going on in the film. And it's really subtle. There's not a whole lot that's like in your face, except for the part where she has like her show tunes moment moment <laughs> where she's right. like dancing in black and white and like yeah. singing and everything. That's probably the more surreal moment in the film. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very whimsical and just like fairy tale esque. you, you hear these like certain parts that just, they remind you of like Italy. They remind you of like old America. It's just like they hit so many notes. And fun fact, I told John this before recording, but I listened to this soundtrack the day after I watched this movie on my way to work. Yeah. And when they played, uh, you'll never know, uh, with Renee Fleming, I cried on my way to work and I was in tears when I clocked in that day. Oh no. Oh my gosh. It was, it just, it moved me so much. Like, uh, as a person, just like that song talks about people that you miss, whether they're loved ones or people that have passed on. Right. And so for me, like, just as a normal person feeling so much emotion, I can't imagine what our main character is feeling going through this entire experience with the Gilman or I other known as the asset. Totally cried the first time because I thought they were both dead. I was like, motherfucker. I'm like, we watched this whole movie 
and they're gonna fucking die right here at the end but then they survive and i was like oh, okay but i was still crying <laughs> it's it's a great soundtrack and there's a lot of emotion in this film i mean guillermo del toro said i didn't want a film that was just you know like i wanted it super stylized but i want this right. to be more about this pulls at your heartstrings because it should right oh totally he deals with a lot of stuff in this film like a lot of adult things too like things we experience as we get older which which is great because like it's a it's so different from uh hellboy because hellboy had a pg rating this went full rated r like yeah just all the way to the top we're gonna have a lot of an adult fairy tale yeah for modern audiences oh, totally um which we should talk about the some production notes real quick yeah um Okay. So what we've learned now is that Gilmero del Toro could potentially be a scaly. A scaly. <laughs> um, huh. So real quick, we're just going to go over some production notes. The budget was uh, $20 million, and it made $195.3 million at the box. So much money. Uh, the, did film, really... the film was almost made in black and white, but because of costs, was cut well, down to they gave him two options they were he was like waffling between the two and so he went to his executives and was like can i make it in black and white they're like if you make it black and white you're only getting 17 million but if you make it in color we'll give you 20 million and so he decided oh, to make yeah. it in color anyway so that was and, like the main thing that he did but he was really thinking about it he was like i kind of want this movie to be black and white <laughs> yeah and the, it could be cool it would be cool the, the color schemes in this movie are so great and on point with the aesthetics. Yeah, it fits. It's uh, very like the, the greens and blues. Yeah. Early fifties. Not green, teal. Yes, it's like <laughs> teal, fifties, sixties, grime. <laughs> like you had on everything. Um, we got Sally Hawkins doing a wonderful job, uh, playing a mute character who does only sign language. Yep. Um Michael Shannon as Richard Strickland the asshole of the movie he's the villain and he's just he's so full of himself he's one damn good one at that his intro scene where he like comes in and pees without touching himself god dude he just the, <laughs> freehand tells, pees tells a lot about a man when he washes his hand if he does it first or before <laughs> but if he does it both he, times that's a weakness in a character <laughs> yeah <laughs> That was weird. Uh, I was like, what the fuck? What does that even mean? Is that like, that's like the most fifties thing I've ever heard. This movie's fifties. <laughs> um, which is crazy because the next two cast members are like, they would have been barred from a fifties movie. Richard Jenkins is Giles, uh, the gay, uh, neighbor to Sally Hawkins. Yeah. He's like super closeted gay man who like won't tell anybody he's gay. And Octavia Spencer is Zelda Fuller, the cleaner that also is the translator for Elisa, uh, Eliza. Yeah, they're friends like 10 plus years. She's so great. I yeah. love her in this film. And I really do like Michael Stolberg's character, Dr. Robert Hofstetler. Yeah, All, a.k.a. Who... Dmitry Mosnikov. <laughs> yeah. So the scientist that helps Secret the escape. Spy. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then, of course, Doug Jones, who's in both films. <laughs> good fucking acting on, on his part literally he the same character it like it's like the same character <laughs> right <laughs> it's some sort of amphibian man but, like it's great but the thing is like doug jones and hellboy he's a sophisticated yeah very well learned 
book book learned fucking amphibian creature well this is just an, a wild animal sort and a god con- <laughs> a, a god uh considered to like the amazonian tribes which the creature came from right oh yeah totally and he, he ends up he ends up having like powers yeah, he has the fucking baby Yoda healing powers. Baby Yoda healing powers. He does. He like glows. And he, he has like bioluminescence, which was uh, executed with you know minimal, with just like bio or what is it's like the neon stick, like glow stick. Oh, shit. The, like a little glow stick kind of technology. But they did it did it with like black lights and stuff like that. That's cool. They must have just put in like LEDs or something mixed with nope. that. Nope. What so they just poured that like into a little container? They they painted him that certain way, and then they did the lighting in such a way that it looked like he was bioluminescent. Oh, that's cool. No yeah. LEDs. I like that. So, really great practical effects, and it it also same with the the dark crystal fucking effect here, where it's a a man in the suit took two hours by the way, not not a lot of time for fucking monster makeup. Right. Two hours is relatively fucking short for monster makeup. Um, but then, you know, mixed with like mechanical gills and then CGI eyes and facial expressions that work. Right. What do you think we should just talk about? I mean, there's a lot to be said about Richard Strickland, how like he is the character that Giles is painting the entire movie. Oh, he is the, yes. And even so, like, his wife comes in and brings him, like, the green jello. That I'm so glad you mentioned it because, like, he was basically talking about – he even makes the joke about he looks as happy as the guy who just discovered the missionary position. And that's literally how he has sex with his oh wife. Oh, my God. He has, he has sex with his wife in missionary position. It's the most awkward sex scene you've ever seen. And then he doesn't want to hear her speak. So, like you said, he puts his fucking hand over her face, but, like, with his rotting fingers. It's just so bad all around. Um, it, it It is. And then the thing is, like, I think it was because he was, like, getting the hots for Eliza, you know? Well, he, he does come on to her at the end, and it's just like, you know, I don't mind the scars, like. I bet I can make you squawk. I was like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. Like, why are you yeah. doing this right now? You're, you're talking to your employee this way. Yeah, that was um, fucked. And it didn't also, surprise me, though, because he's fucking terrible. I like that he chews candy throughout the entire movie, too. Fucking, yeah, what was he eating? I didn't see what candy it was. I didn't either, but I like his description when he's killing Dimitri about it. Oh, my God. Yeah, how he's just like a simple man. I'm a simple man. You know, people have their pleasures. You know, when I'm feeling anxious, I just chomp right into it. He's just, he's the worst kind of villain because he fits the caricature of a 50s man. Like, he's like the 50s man's man who is sexist. He he tries to be that way, too. He actively tries to be the 50s man, man that, you know, he's like today, like if he was like 80 years old, he would be a boomer. Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, that's what he is. Hey man, you know nine or what is it? Eighty percent of all successful people drive a Cadillac. God, yeah, right. You know what? That, thing. that was a good Carl sa- car salesman. Like that guy was good at selling cars. Yeah, mm-hmm. he like knew exactly what he needed to tell him to get him in that fucking car, and he sold it to him. And, and the thing, the thing is, like with, I mean, this is behind a nineteen sixty two Cold War era backdrop, right? Which pulls a perfect 
uh, dynamic between the cleaners and like the Russian spy that's working to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like that, you know, the Strickland takes over as head of security and just the guy underneath him basically like crumbles into like nothing. Right. Um, <laughs> this is bitch throughout the entire movie. Um, but I think it's crazy because like they just straight up see the monster in this cleaning field. Like it must be so weird to work at a government facility where like shady stuff is going on right and well, all you're doing is cleaning up shit <laughs> their their roles as the custodians and cleaning up these areas gave them the perfect cover to be able to just go anywhere and people don't really notice them all that much there's scenes where zelda's character is talking to her about her husband and no one around them is really paying them any mind even though they're like right in front of these panels they're going in and out of doors so this works for their advantage when they're moving around. But it also is this piece of social commentary about how they felt about women in the workplace and how they felt about black people in the workplace. Yeah. Like, especially completely like completely ignored. Zelda them. has that uh, stereotypical, like, oh, my, my husband, you know, my husband. Right. He's, he's this, he's that. Um, and she's she's a working woman and like yeah it like near the end of the film when zelda get the door it's like literally like two feet in front of him yeah that was so <laughs> annoying I was dude, like, this dude is that whole shit. scene is the most spineless and useless piece of shit in that room <laughs> yeah. like at that moment like <laughs> like he just just the only thing that he's useful for is being a rat yeah that was <laughs> fucking shit he just totally was... out at them yeah, and, no joke. And the thing is, like, the portrayal of uh, black people in this movie doesn't end there. I mean, there's the whole pie scene, and like, when Giles no, makes the fucked. hit on the guy, um, like the guy fakes his accent to get people into the store. Right. I'm from like he's nowhere near anywhere near a southern draw, but he plays it because like his company tells him to. Giles goes in for the pie and stays to talk about his life. You know. I and, do uh, gotta say though, when he comes over and sits down and talks to him, I thought the first time I watched it, I was like, "Oh, maybe this guy's gay too." But then he wasn't, and I was like, "Oh, what was I expecting <laughs> in this film?" But it's just the way he approached him that like he seemed extra friendly, right? So I guess that was the point, like to make you kind of fall into that, and then it like it really takes a turn when the black couple comes in. He's like, you can't sit down. They're all reserved all day. Like if you want something, take it to go. I'm like, Oh shit. That's right. This is fifties. <laughs> uh, when <laughs> everything was segregated, like this is fucked up. And he's like, you best be leaving too. Y'all come back now. You hear? Yeah. That was so fucked up. Jeez. God. Um, that was, that was a rough moment. That was like when Strickland talks to Zelda and uh, Eliza and he asks Zelda, oh, you know, are you, like, an only child? Do you have any siblings? And she's like, nope, just me. And he's like, oh, that's, like, uncommon for your people, right? And I was like, oh, yeah. shit. Like, this is blatantly racist. And right. she's like, oh, no, like, my mom died, like, after having me. So that was it. And Zelda is in no way a caricature of a 50s black woman. She's very well-spoken all the way through. And I feel like it was done on purpose to break whatever stereotype was trying to be put onto her character. Yeah. At the end of the movie, she puts her foot down and says, you know, to her husband, you know, you, you never want to talk, but now you suddenly do. No, right. no. And he sits the fuck and down. I, I was really excited during that part. Um, 
I thought Dr. The scientist who helps the escape, I thought it was really great for him because you, he's dealing with a force that he can't reckon with. It's an entire yeah. nation trying to steal an asset for uh, basically like furthering their research to get ahead of the U S and he, he in a way falls in love with the creature as well. Yeah. As a scientist, he wants to as like, a study it, figure out like how to help him and whatnot. And he, poor guy, he ends up getting shot at the end of the film. Dude, I think it's so intense when he has to sit on that cinder block and they come up in the car and he has right. to say a password every time. Yeah, I mean, it he's was... a fucking spy. He's a Russian spy. Right. What? No password today? Shot in the face. It's like, in the straight cheek. Straight through the mouth. Yeah, like, it was out of his cheek. Oh, man. Um, But, I mean, now we got to go to the meat and potatoes of a shape, <laughs> The Shape of Water, John. The right. romance. Well, so one of the main things that I noticed was that this wasn't your typical 50s movie where the main characters, the the female character lead is just like a side character. And in some crazy good way, he made a, a mute character the centerpiece of the story. And she said so much through her acting and through like physical presence on film that she ended up saying like, some really important things about what was going on during that time period. And like the film itself breaks a lot of things that you normally don't see. Like you don't normally see female masturbation on film. That's not porn. Right. Yeah. That was like, I was like, Oh wow. We're getting into that already. Okay. Like it's part of her daily routine. Like that's her morning. (laughs) Right. And she just does it every morning and it's like normal. It's part of her life. And it's not seen as like this, exclusively sexual thing made for like men to watch and that's like one of the important things about about that scene it's like her cup of coffee right yeah exactly and like it really gets at the idea that like so one of the things that's like brought up and studied in parts of film film theory and like uh critical analysis is the idea of this male gaze where most films about women or that include women are made so that men can enjoy watching it, aka something that's like porn, or like you would have gotten mm-hmm. a few, like a full frontal shot of her masturbating if it was made for the male gaze. But instead, you kind of get a cutaway where you you know what she's doing, but you don't get to see everything that's happening. So all you need to that's know, like a split second. yeah, it's like this is a part of her routine, and that's all you need to know about it. And it's done in such a good way to considering that it has like sort of no relevance to the story, but it gives you an idea of like who she is. She knows like, like what she, she wants. gets up every morning. She cooks her eggs. She makes her yeah. sandwiches. She makes sure that her neighbor is alive and well. Yeah. And uh, she sleeps on the bus every time she goes to work. Yep. Every morning goes there. And um, every time she comes back. So she works I think, nights, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was great, though, because of the, like, Guillermo del Toro picked her simply because he said uh, she was my first pick and she was my only pick because yeah. he wanted a female that wasn't model like or godlike, but someone that you could be you could just fall in love with. Yeah, and there was a mainly lot of through stuff the eyes. That. And like when she's talking to Giles about, you know, they have a creature and he understands me for me oh, and doesn't so see me for my flaws because I can't speak. They uh, and, they take away the subtitles in that moment, so you you the only translation you have is through her friend. 
and it's so it's because it's taking its time it's like he loves me yeah and exactly. for me and it's like it's it's a beautiful thing because she she begins like you know experimenting with him with music giving mm-hmm. him more food like showing him how to dance like it's super cute is is what i would just call it i mean like <laughs> the, <laughs> it's re- it's it's really a fairy tale and uh did you notice the movie playing um the so there was uh there was a bunch there was like three or four different films but what was the first one right well i'll tell you the main one yeah so the story of ruth from 1960 okay the story of ruth features a plot taken from a, the biblical story of ruth okay where the female protagonist is given up as a child raised to be a priestess to pagan gods oh dang. Until, until she then meets an outsider with different values and a belief in the one true god they fall in love but they are persecuted and he is in prison and she makes a failed attempt to free him oh wow i did not realize just how important that was to the film but that's really cool that you found that out yeah it it, it is and like that's not the only biblical reference because we have yeah um what is it? Uh, story of Samson uh, and Delilah. Story of Samson with Delilah. How his, yeah, you know, his hair Samson, getting cut. With his hair getting cut, losing his powers, just to reach out in a last, uh, you know, effort of glory to ask for God for strength, and crumbles the temple all around. Yeah, all the nations. Fucking Strickland says the story, and he, I, I guess in that moment he is comparing himself to Samson, which is so pretentious, but that's like his belief is that, you know, everything is going to go bad until it goes right for him at the end. And he thinks he really succeeds, but doesn't. (laughs) Right. And, Uh, and the thing is the creature is, uh, I mean, she takes care of him. She helps him escape with the help of the scientist and Octavia. Um, and it's, it's really crazy and on the nose. I mean, they even have the Israeli popper is what they call it. Right. Um, but that whole scene is just very tense. But after that, I mean, she's just taking care of him in her bath and she even goes too far as to like, not too far, but she like puts a towel in her room and she fills the whole thing with water. Uh, yeah, I, so that for some reason, for some reason, I didn't like this scene. And it seemed a, a little, a little fake. Well, that's the thing. I'm like, why am I getting so worked up about this scene when, like, it's literally about a lady falling in love with a fish dude? Like, this, your suspension <laughs> of disbelief should be gone already. But I was still like, who the fuck floods an entire fucking room like that? And I was so upset. But it was still and it like leaks into the theater too. Yeah, and like gets all these people like upset. And it's just so funny to me that that's what kind of threw me out of the story. But it was just for like the cinematic effect of her being like underwater with him. But, yeah, and and like we got to talk about the elephant in the room, John. <laughs> Whether or not you see fish penis. Yeah, this movie did ha- not have any fish penis. No, zero out no. of ten. Do not recommend. <laughs> no, right? Yeah, it doesn't deserve any of the awards it got. <laughs> no, but I mean, everyone was like, "Really, a a movie about a girl fucking a fish won the yeah. best picture." You yep. do get a constellation prize of knowing how it functions, though yep it's like it's <laughs> like, apparently like like it just retracts like it goes in and out 
I thought it was so funny how uh, Octavia Spencer's character is just like, man, you can't trust a man, even if he has nothing down there. Yeah, that's just hilarious. <laughs> and she knows. I love that she knows her friend has had sex recently because she's so happy and is just like, well, what happened? And then she asks her, like, how is that even possible? And you get this little, like, hand diagram that Eliza does. And, like, <laughs> it's just her. And then she, like, does a finger straight through her hands to show that, like, it just opens, I guess. <laughs> right it was too funny because it's it you you got the visual without having to see it like he wasn't gonna make a fish penis for you to see in the fucking theater i'm I'm glad yeah i mean it's it's so funny to me that that was like all implied and it's well done too because it's like what you had mentioned earlier where the main character was not intended to be your uh typical um, character that you see for the like female leads they usually make them very 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 attractive like obscenely uh like they either are super attractive they don't really know what they're doing they're not like uh very sure of themselves and she's none of it so she's not conventionally yeah. attractive although she is an attractive character but in so many different ways and it's like you get to right. see her be a very like dominant character she knows what she wants she's not afraid to like follow what she's really believing in and she does so as a mute character. She doesn't really say much throughout the film besides the singing. And then at the end, you find out either. So I couldn't figure out at the end if she was given the gills or if she had had them the whole time. I believe the monster after getting shot, you know, and she was like about to die. He yeah. has healing powers. Right. But I feel like he basically made gills on her from her. I thought so. Okay. That's what um, I thought too. I thought he like found a way for her to live underwater. So he was like, here's some gills. <laughs> I, I love the throwback callback to the fucking creature from the black lagoon yep. where he has her in the, his arms. Oh, totally. oh I, I got so giddy when that happened. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is it. This is the moment. And that's the cover. That's like the poster. Yeah. When they're hugging yeah. with the shoe falling and she's in a red dress. It's yeah, it's, it's really, really good. It's, it, it's poetic. This whole movie's poetic. Yeah, it gets it's, at the idea that there is some way to escape from whatever is going on as long as you have that, like, love from another person. I love Guile's character, too, when he's like, man, this old face, and the only thing I recognize is these eyes. <laughs> and then he slowly regains his hair with the 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 fish person. Yeah, he, like, he's heals like, his, uh, I don't know, hair loss, I guess, and, like, loss. has his hair regrow. <laughs> I felt so conflicted about his character, though. Giles, to me, was he was interesting as a character because he's a closeted gay man in the 50s trying to, like, come to terms with that because at that time they thought it was, like, a mental illness. So yeah. he didn't really know how to go about that. But, but what really threw me off was during one of the scenes, there is current events being shown on TV, which is the segregation and the riots uh, about the police right. just straight up kicking black people out of certain areas. And he's like, I don't want to see it. Like, I don't want to see any of it. And like switches to a movie. And it's a weird moment because you do want to care about a disenfranchised character who's gay, but he's also, he doesn't care about anyone else. Like he doesn't care about black people during that time period. So well, it's he, like, it's like he's dealing with I, his own stuff, but he also doesn't care about other stuff. So I felt weird about it. I feel like he's at that point where like to him, that stuff is just, uncalled for and not necessary i mean it shows the hosing of 
black people in the 60s. Yeah, which is fucked up. And, yeah. Um, but the thing is, like, I feel like his character didn't want to see that simply because it's a disparity for a certain minority. That's right. why he defends the people in the shop, the pie shop. He says, you don't have to do that to them, dude. You don't. Yeah, yeah, he really does. He's like, that's, like, so unnecessary to do something like that. So that's true. That's a good point. He does, he does say something in that moment. And the thing is, he's probably, you know, faced so much fucking discrimination with him being a gay man i'm guessing that he didn't that he didn't get rehired at that place because he was gay and they found out oh i didn't even make that connection yeah i think that's why they were like kind of stringing him along where he was just like yeah you know now's not a good time and i think it's because the guy knew but didn't want to say it to his face to be like we're not hiring you because you're gay so it was like that when is a good time (laughs) yeah exactly and he like confronts him and he's like and then they just don't buy his painting which sucks which is also like totally a a film history kind of thing where all the people who are painting uh the film posters suddenly were out of a job because they were starting to use photography for the film uh posters so like that was like one of the periods of time where they started using different stuff. It didn't come back into popularity until like the like late seventies, early eighties when they did it for like Blade Runner and Star Wars and shit like that. Right, and and, yeah, so and that that's the thing. Like, there's there. there's so many. This movie is drenched in its timepiece. Yeah, for real. And it's it's aesthetic, uh, film wise. I didn't know. Like, did you know that the uh, the sign on the fucking theater is CGI? I, I did not know that. Holy shit. Like, there's so many scenes in this movie where I'm like, wow, that looks really great, and they're not there. I do know that the theater inside is a real theater. The outside of the theater is a facade, and then the interior of the apartment was a studio set. Which, I'm, which is, I don't know, man. Like, the set design on this, is, it's, it's the greens and blues. In the soap dispensers, the cars, the fucking... It was very, like, period accurate. <laughs> like, this is exactly it just, what it would have looked like. It hits the notes. And yeah. I love how... um, I love how Strickland says... These are, you know, Amazonian people. They're primitive people. They would throw flowers and uh, right. fruits into the river as offerings for this god. And then when he finally gets, you know, destroyed by this creature he's like you are a god because he sees the regeneration i love that he's like oh shit you are a god (laughs) and then gets his throat (laughs) cut um there's a lot i could say about the shape of water but the thing is it's just a all-around good film yeah and the soundtrack i've i've never done this for an episode of the podcast yeah i see a movie and i listen to the soundtrack and i go out the next day and buy a vinyl record of it fuck yeah (laughs) <laughs> I talk about the vinyl here and there on the on on the podcast a little bit, but if it if you can support a local a local record store at this yep. time because they need the business, hell yeah. Um, but definitely check out the Shape of Water soundtrack. It will move you in so many ways, and I honestly I have a lot. It's just a good movie, dude. I oh, can't man. fucking say anything else about <laughs> it. If you're gonna watch it, you should watch it by yourself so you can have a good cry because <laughs> it's gonna make you cry uh and it's just because of the like love story that they've dropped into an unlikely setting and having so many things intersect within the narrative it works really well and it felt like a really mature film for del toro who i feel like up to this point had been kind of 
like really focusing in on what kind of movies he wanted to make. And this is like one of the best films he's made. This one and like Pan's Labyrinth, I think, are like up there. This, Those are really good. This is his most mature film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's like one of the notes I made too, where I feel like this was one of the more mature films that he had because it dealt with so much. And it was still, it wasn't so deep that you couldn't figure out what the hell the movie was talking about. It was doing it kind of in broad strokes, but it was he, still entertaining. He also said if this movie did not do well, he would have stopped directing altogether. Yeah, that's wild. He was like ready to just be like, I don't fucking want to do this anymore. But like, it did so well. It was like a com- like huge commercial success. And it, it deserves every accolade that it got. I believe I didn't see this in 2017, but God, do I wish I did. I wish I did. Right. Yeah. I definitely watched it in theaters and it was like fucking awesome to watch in theaters. One of the only other things I wanted to mention about it was there's like quotes in the movie and there's one that's like written on the little, uh, little uh, date thing that she's putting, like when she's going to take him to the docks and the one she pulls off, it says life is, but the shipwreck of our plans. And I was like, that's such a good, quote for like their whole fucking thing because she had so many plans like for her life for what she was going to do possibly staying with him for a long time and then she was ready to just let him go into the ocean and everything but because of what had happened with Strickland she was actually able to go with him so it was just a whole mess of things that happened and I didn't think that was going to happen they did a bold thing where they just go off right you know and I thought he was going to heal her and then she was going to get out of the water and just stay with her humans. But the monster makes out with the girl. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly what he wanted. Um, I, I think this is the last thing that I will note. Yeah. It ends with a beautiful poem. Yeah. It's so good. Do you have it? Yes. Yeah. Go for it. Unable to perceive the shape of you. I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere. Nice. Snaps. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's such a good bookend to the story because you have the narration from Giles, who was the like only witness to the whole story. And I'm guessing Del Toro wrote that bit because it's like, it can't be found anywhere. Like I looked it up to see if maybe it was a quote from somebody, but it, it, there's no like specific reference. It is, that is like man uh, <laughs> love, for a love poem that is just too good yeah that was really good it's well done uh, i wonder if it was del toro or if it was just somebody who was like there on set they're like i need a poem just write me a poem <laughs> and then they made this and it was so good for the for the ending like that's the last line of it and you, well, you get to see them like to hugging together at the end i mean they are they are water now <laughs> right yeah i assume they're just gonna escape into the ocean and then have live happily ever after he even says it the narrator's like i don't know i like to think that they got away and lived happily ever after but you know it just makes me think about this poem and then says the poem but that makes me think about so what what were like some of your favorite scenes from from both films uh hellboy probably probably the scene with any scene with the mechanical man yeah. Um, and the not Nazi intro. I love the little no- notes about what Hitler did and the spear of destiny. Yeah. I really yeah. wish we could have went further on that, but that's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like all the history. 
not, yeah not even that just like the, the spear i thought it was a loaded gun you know yeah i really did too uh it was it was definitely like a film thing for us to be like yo is that gonna like show up later <laughs> <laughs> the cog kill is hands down like the, just because he's with the the shitty fbi leader and their dynamic for saving one another was really cool right. in that scene um and then shape of water i think when he runs out and he goes into the theater and just stares at the screen. Yeah. He's just in he put, awe <laughs> and he puts his hand on his heart and it's like, he's signing to her like love or something like that. Oh man. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. He's probably telling her that like he felt some kind of way about watching the film. Right. And, uh, I think other than that, the escape scene just the entire dynamic of it was a lot of fun. Right. I, I, I love how Giles overreacted because he was like, I'm not good at this, man. I'm not good at this. <laughs> man, they they made a rookie mistake by, by writing in the ink very, like, <laughs> right before it because the guy, like, smudged it off, and that's how he figured it out. Yeah. And then um, the bioluminescence at the end with the shot, also oh, yeah. with him grabbing the girl creature of the black lagoon style so yep those are my favorite dang those are good ones uh, i'm sorry i went too there's too many good ones <laughs> the hellboy the hellboy one uh my favorite scene from hellboy is probably like the smaller moments when he's talking to people like one of them is when he goes and meets the samael creature and he's just like you know i'm not a very good shot here but the samaritan here uses really big bullets <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like doesn't have to be a good shot because it's such a big fucking gun and right that shit is funny and then there's another part where he's fighting the same creature and he's like ah, ah, ah this is the second date no tongue and like has like the tongue wrapped <laughs> around his his fist because he's trying to like get him out of the subway while holding like a box of kittens oh yeah i totally forgot yeah. about that he so, loves kittens yeah he has like those one-liners which are hilarious uh like that part and then um god when is it when he's talking to i think it's when he's talking to myers about uh how he feels about liz and is explaining like it's just not that easy like and he's just like no like all you gotta do is talk to her and it'll work out fine mitch what were some of your favorite scenes in, in both films uh one of my favorite scenes from that one is definitely the one in the bathroom where she like plugs up the the uh the door and everything and it floods the place and it's just super like weird and like that shouldn't work but we'll let it go because it's so cute uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah i feel like that was one of the things where i was like this wouldn't work but okay <laughs> yeah exactly but it no but it was great because but it, but i like that it started like flooding and affected everyone so everyone's like oh there was a terrible flood upstairs yeah you that know? was great um and then for Hellboy, my favorite scene from that one. Damn. There's a lot of cool ones. There's like a lot of cool fights. I think the whole chase scene with the first son of Samael is pretty awesome. Uh, where they're like running through the city? Yeah, just like that whole yeah. entire like span of time is just pretty great. Just yeah. with the one. I like that one. he uh, puts his, his stony finger into like the goo. And he's like, I think you got a leak. <laughs> yeah, you got a leak. <laughs> he's got yeah. so many good one-liners throughout the film. And yeah. It's so good they because it's Ron Perlman. Yeah. Uh, did you have a favorite scene from A Shape of Water? Or The Shape of Water, John? 
uh from the shape of water uh i feel like one of my favorite scenes was uh when strickland is explaining to um god we, we mentioned it earlier it's not my favorite because it's a good scene but it's just because it's so it's well-written dialogue for the character and he's explaining how washing your hands more than once uh yes is when a sign of a weak character and i didn't get it i was like is this just really 50s like macho masculine ideals like he's like no no, no. i wash my hands before my business and then I don't wash my hands after that. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what is this? But it was so on brand for his really terrible villain character. So I was like, yeah, this this works out for him. I never wipe my hands when I pee. <laughs> yeah, it was just like. Bruh, that's straight up heresy. Yeah. That's heresy right now. And then, of course, the end scene. I was very excited when I first watched it to be like, yes, they're both going to live together and she's like grown gills and shit like it's the it's the poster and you have that moment where you're like oh this is the moment where they show you like what the poster is on top of what the name of the film is where he's like the shape of you i i was totally out of the loop because my internet killed me but another great like big confusing like conflicted emotional scene in shape of water that i love is when dimitri is getting beat up by the other like kbg guys is getting shot by them yeah and then out of fucking nowhere comes mr limpy mcbarbituate and he just starts fucking capping people dude he's a good shot like <laughs> he, he gets and you're him, like, like you don't know here to go oh no but you're like yay but no yeah <laughs> like, i oh. felt bad for dimitri honestly yeah honestly he's the best person but yeah. i guess historically good people are never treated very well no uh, <laughs> what did you guys think of the black and white show tune scene i loved it it's just it was it was such a tribute to that specific time period of film that was considered to be like the golden age of film when they mm-hmm. were doing show tunes they were excited to have a musical number in their movies because it showed the skill of their actors their actors could sing they could dance they could act like that was like the three things you had to do in film during that time period and so for her she's a theater actor so she was able to put her like skills on display for the film she can actually dance she knows how to sing and she knows how to act so this was a cool moment for her it was also a super important moment because it's the only time the mute actually says something. yeah exactly and Mm -hmm. she sounds craggly at first yeah um, but then it goes into the the soundtrack but I think it was so beautiful because she doesn't talk this entire time and she doesn't even attempt to talk to anyone, but she'll attempt to sing to a creature that can't understand. And that's why um, that track, I miss you or whatever it was. So emotional. Just hit, hit, hit so much harder for me. And that's why I cried punching in on Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) She, she was so close. She was so close to winning an award and she didn't say anything in the entire film. She was definitely nominated as like the best act like actor in the film, like in a leading role, but she didn't win it. She absolutely um definitely deserved to be in the running for it. I don't yeah. know. Her portrayal of a mute character is portrays so much emotion in her role. Yeah. Despite being mute. Yeah. And does it yeah. really, really well. And you're actually like, God damn, I'm actually a little afraid of this really tiny person. Like <laughs> she's actually <laughs> yeah. upset. It's a really good credit to her theater acting that she's able to express that much emotion through just her body language and her face. 
Um, so that was pretty much it. What would you guys rate these movies? Uh, Hellboy, like, uh, seven, 6.5. It's a comic book movie. Yeah. Uh, one of the first, uh, it, it hits some notes, but I kind of want to see what the sequel is about. Maybe my opinion will change on the first. Yeah. You should actually go watch the second one. Shape of water. Oh man. I'll give this the Murr seal of approval. Never given to a movie. <laughs> we'll just say it's like an 11 out of 10 for me. That's the Murr nice. seal of approval. 11 nice. out of 10. What do you think, Mitch? Mm. Uh, I would probably go with like a 7.5 for Hellboy nice. in terms of like quality. So the CGI is a little bit dated, to be honest. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and it's more noticeable now that I'm rewatching it. Um, <laughs> Uh, but other than that, I enjoy Perlman's take on the character and I love all the homage to the comics. So it gets a solid 7.5 just for really trying. It went really hard. It went hard, but not hard enough, I guess. <laughs> uh, Shape of Water is easy 10 for me. Nice. Uh, it's just that good. Like, it's just that good. <laughs> it really does a really good story. It does a really good. It has probably one of the most, like, I don't know. It has a lot of the most like creepiest scenes. It really makes you feel a lot in most all of the scenes. It does a really good job of capturing your emotions, different right. ones too. Uh, what would you rate these films? I would say for Hellboy, I would give it like an eight. Damn. I, I, Damn. I, I liked, I just liked the pacing of the film. I didn't feel like they wasted time on much of anything. Uh, anytime they did slow down and show you more of the characters, it felt right to me that you were learning more about Hellboy and how he feels about Liz and his like how he's sort of not fully matured. Like he's he's kind of like a teenager, which is really funny to me because he's just so powerful and he has to has to deal with kind of growing up and growing much slower than his father does so he has to like experience losing other humans that are gonna age out pretty quickly so it's just mm -hmm. it was a good story i liked it i love the hellboy comics too so i thought it was like a good adaptation of it They're, they are really good yeah it's a really good story he, he deals with so much internal conflict as he goes through all the stories in the comics and this is a really good portrayal of that but like the larger overarching story for it and then for the shape of water i'd also give it a 10 just because it's it to me it's like what the lighthouse was for its specific like niche genre where it's like this is specifically a like love story about a, like a woman and a creature and it's not ever been done really like there's it's so specific and i don't think anyone will ever make anything like it again because mm -hmm. it's just so specifically made by del toro and if anyone does yeah. it it's obviously a ripoff yeah it's gonna be like such a hard rip of yeah. whatever he's doing and he found a way to keep you interested all the way through even though you didn't really know what the fuck was happening uh in part of the story and then you get a lot of sympathy for like the other for for the creature for her for any disenfranchised character in the story and it's so well done and considering it's made by uh, a mexican-american director he's like spot on with getting that dialogue just right and it's not punching you in the face where it's so obvious that it feels like a stereotype or like a trope mm -hmm. somehow this movie was unique all the way through and didn't feel like it was really borrowing too much from things but it obviously had a visual and like aesthetic tribute 
to older films and it was it was just all, all the way through i liked it and i would definitely rewatch it like over and over again mostly to see people's reactions for what happens yeah. because i was really sad at the end when i first watched it and then realized that they actually make it all the way through so it's fun to show someone as like an unconventional love story with like horror-esque vibes in it because of the mm. setting so i definitely recommend watching it oh yeah <laughs> um was there anything else any last thoughts uh yes go buy the soundtrack at a local record yeah the vinyl it's even it's even fish person blue oh hell yeah okay <laughs> like the blue like on him like that dark blue yeah yeah like 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 that uh scaly like blue yeah all right cool well then before i let everyone go i want to remind everyone we're super easy to find we're on basically any streaming service where you go to listen to podcasts some of the main ones are going to be the apple podcast the google podcast as well as um, iHeartRadio and spotify so you can find us on any of those just look up bringing down the grindhouse you can also look at our social medias which are going to be bdtgh underscore podcast or go to bdtghpodcast.com and you can listen to the episodes there or follow any of the links through to one of the streaming services we are also getting the episodes up onto youtube very slowly but eventually it'll catch up to where we're at now which is like the 51st 52nd episode Goddamn. Yeah, we're somewhere around there. We've been doing it for like over a year now, so we're getting like pretty deep into it. And then, of course, we have our Patreon that's running currently where we're going to have a special like behind the scenes post. So some bloopers we have before we start episodes. We usually chat for 10 to 15 minutes about random stuff to kind of get us prepared for the podcast. So I'm going to start cutting those up and putting them up. We also have our solo episodes from Mitch, Murr, and myself, which focus on video games with Mitch and then on monster movies with Murr. And then any afterthoughts that I have for film is going to be on there. We are going to try to fill that up so that when you go, you can actually get a bunch of different behind the scenes look at it. But if you could also leave a review at the Apple podcast, it really helps us on the website and it helps us get seen more easily. And then feel free to send us any messages you have. So recommendations, any critiques of the podcast that you've listened to so far, or if you wanted to talk about something specific, more than happy to answer any of those messages. But I hope everyone has a good night. I'm Mitch. I'm Murph. And I'm John. Thank you. <laughs>